Welcome to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. We would like to offer thanks to all you heretics and maniacs for your continued support and encourage you to visit our website at monstersmadnessandmagic.com to stay up to date on all the dark dealings within the Sanctuary of the Strange. We can also be found slithering our way into your nearest social media platforms. Be sure to follow Monsters, Madness, and Magic on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show and would like to unlock Patreon-exclusive content, consider subscribing at patreon.com forward slash Monsters Madness Magic. Enjoy the show. <laughs> Greetings, boils and goobles. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I am Justin, joined by my co-host, Angelique. Say hello, Angelique. Hello. And this evening, we're joined by a very special guest, the keeper of the crypt himself, veteran actor, Mr. John Kassir. John, how the hell are you? <laughs> hello, kiddies. Hello. hello how are you doing, Justin? Hello, Angelique Bone. Have I got a bone for you? <laughs> All right, show's over. <laughs> how you guys doing? Doing good, John. Uh, Everybody's staying safe during this coronavirus. Yes. Washing your bony little fingers, <laughs> wearing a mask. You know, not that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. How about yourself? How are things out there? You know, it's LA, man. There's it's you got people that are super, super safe, and then you have the people that are just like going, Hey man, I'm cool. I'm cool, man. <laughs> you know, and it's just it's uh Hey, it is what it is. I'm I, I I am seriously not getting political about it. It's right. more about health and people that I care about. But yeah. certainly, seen a lot of people get it. Seen a few, uh, more than a few that um, I either know or you know, family extensions of friends or things die from it. Um, it's a serious thing. So <clears throat> we try to stay safe and do what's right and uh, protect ourselves, and that's the best we can do. Vaccine, and you know, if that's what you want to do. Not telling anybody what. I just hope everybody takes care of themselves. Well said. Yes. Well, I suppose an appropriate place to start would be the beginning. So do you <laughs> do you recall when you were struck by the urge to pursue acting as a career? Was there a eureka moment? Is there a beginning? Gosh. <laughs> um, really young. Uh, you know, I mean, I uh, as a kid, um, I wasn't a very good student. I was dyslexic, and they didn't really know what that was. Um, now as I've gotten, you know... Uh, Older, it doesn't seem to affect me too much. You know, I'll be typing stuff and I'll go, Jesus, what is that word? Um, <laughs> and uh, that kind of thing. But um, back when you're learning and they don't know, you know, what that kind of learning detriment is, they just, you know, they call you lazy and disruptive because you're trying to participate and you're trying to be, for me, it was participating by being entertaining and making the class laugh or, you know, my imagination would run wild. And I think that was part of it too. I don't think it was about a learning disability as much as I just had a really hyperactive imagination. And that was much more prevalent in my brain than whatever they were putting up on a board or, you know, as soon as they engaged you with songs or puppets or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and I struggled through my first, you know, a uh, couple of years of school. And then by the time I was in my second time in third grade, <laughs> um, I had a teacher who was like, 
God, you're really good when you get up in class and you read in front of the class, you know, and you read better and you become the characters and this kind of thing. And um, she was a great teacher, Mrs. Fields, as I remember her name. And um, and that that kind of started me on the path. But it's funny, I used to entertain the kids in the neighborhood by doing circuses in my basement. Wow. You know, I'd uh, charge like a penny to get in, but five cents for the candy, kind of like what the movie theaters do. You know? <laughs> That's a good business um, model. The candy. You know, I buy penny candy and sell it for a nickel. <laughs> make, make that profit, man. Make that profit. <laughs> I don't think I made much of a profit. I probably just bought more candy with it. But, <laughs> but yeah, um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, but I, you know, it's kind of, it kind of was my calling, you know, I mean, I got involved even in elementary school, I would get involved in like little mini plays or that kind of stuff in class. And I, I loved sports. I was an athlete. I played lacrosse. I played football, but I, you know, soon realized as I broke bones and, and had permanent injuries from playing football in high school, I was much too small to play. <clears throat> I was only 135 pounds, you know, 135 pound running back. Oof. I was fast, but when they catch you, man. It hurts. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, and I got some scholarships to play lacrosse in college and that kind of thing. But I kind of, you know, staved them off because I knew I wanted to be an actor and studied at Towson University with some really great actors and great teachers and moved my way to New York. But, you know, I mean, even as a kid, I loved the Tales from the Crypt comic books. My grandfather had a store, a little, you know, bodega type store that um, back in in Prohibition, they used to have a still in the back, you know, and uh, they'd give people alcohol and they'd, they'd go, what do you want? And the guy, wine. They put a little grape juice in it. He goes, what do you want? He goes, I, I want whiskey. They put a little Coca-Cola in it. <laughs> it was grain alcohol. But my cousins and I would all go into my grandfather's store and be like, he was really old. They'd be like, yo, go get the magazine or a comic book, you know, and all my cousins would be trying to steal like you know, the girly magazines and I'd be stealing tales from the crypt, you know, and got impeccable, you know uh, go ahead. But you've got impeccable taste. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. My mom didn't think so. <laughs> it was like, you know, because the, the, the buzz was so bad on those things. I mean, to this day, the reason they have codes on comic books is because of the easy comic. And my mother would be like, those are caused juvenile delinquency. And I would have to hide them. I had a bunch of Casper comics that I got from a friend of my sister's. That I, I never even read them, but I hid all my Tales from the Crypt comic books in them, you know. And Archie comics. Can you imagine me reading Archie comics? It's like, you know, the only character I liked was Jughead. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I went full blast into acting in high school. I had a buddy of mine, uh, Fred Smythe, and Fred and I used to, uh, you know, Fred was we always played the leading man in all the musicals, and I always played the comic part, you know. <laughs> and we'd do all the talent shows, and he'd wheel me out on a dolly, and I would be a three-in-one machine or something, and he'd be hawking, you know, it slices, it dices, and I'd turn into like a popcorn popper and or a, you know, orange juicer. <laughs> spit in a cup you know <laughs> and stuff like that and um and we wound up doing all the morning announcements um you know like all the the different like the you know the athletic groups or something would have like the gymnastic troop coming in and they'd be like can you do the we'll give you free tickets if you do the morning announcement for us and we do you know, impersonations of the teachers, you know, the following morning announcement brought to you by a grant from the Mobile Corporation, you know, Mash to Pieces Theater, you know. Um, we do the Beatles. John, Paul, George, Ringo, you're going to the school dance. Uh, we're playing the school dance, you know, and we do all this stuff. And uh, I guess that was my first intro to doing voiceover work, which is not really something that... Um, I thought would be a forefront in my career. Um, obviously comedy and theater was, you know, I'd always wanted to, by the time I got into college, I was studying theater and went to school with, uh, you know, some really amazing people. Um, Charles Dutton was in, you know, went to school with me, who you might know as Rock from the show Rock. And he was in a, a lot of great movies and that kind of thing. And, and <clears throat> Eric King, who was on Dexter and, uh, you know, Dwight Schultz uh, would come back and work with us. He was some years ahead of me, but you all know him as Madman Murdoch on the A-Team and, you know, as wow. voices, you know so, so many great voices as, in cartoons as well and that kind of thing. But 
<clears throat> we had, you know, a lot of really dedicated to the theater. And that's where I, I learned to do, you know, sketch comedy and theater and all these things. But, you know, you move to New York and you find out really quickly that you don't make much money in the theater. <laughs> you can barely pay your rent in New York. So, um, you know, I started doing things like street performing in front of the Metropolitan Museum. You know, I was with a comedy sketch group that came out of my co college, uh, Animal Cracker. We did tours for the USO and played clubs in New York. And that's where I started building all my voices, my characters, and this kind of thing that I would do in sketches, um, improv, and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, eventually led to winning a part in a, in a show off Broadway called Three Guys Naked from the Waist Down. Which I've was, heard of uh, that. Which I know, it, it was a big hit off Broadway. And um, I know it sounds like a dirty show, but, you know, and it was in the village, uh, off Broadway house. <laughs> In the village, and everybody thought it was like you know a nude male review or something, but it was um, it was a sh it was a show. Think Dreamgirls, uh, you know, like the musical Dreamgirls, but with stand-up comic. Okay. So it was a musical about three stand-up comics, and starred myself along with Scott Bakula, who you know from uh, uh, you know CSI New Orleans and Quantum Leap and all these great shows. And Scott's still a dear friend and. Jerry Colker, who who wrote the piece, uh, you know, who came off of doing Chorus Line and Pippin and <clears throat> a bunch of other Broadway shows. And and um, it was a big hit. And, you know, here I was playing a stand-up comic, a very dark kind of suicidal comic, kind of like an Andy Kaufman-ish kind of character. And, um, you know, having done street performing, that kind of thing, it was I was believable enough in the character that people thought that I was this character or like this character. And right. so um, I started getting offered things like, hey, can you come play our comedy club and can do this and that kind of thing. And just about that same time, um, some scouts from Star Search, in, they were in their first season, saw me on the show. And um, you can interrupt me with questions at any time, by the way. No, that was actually one of my questions. No, I haven't. I'll just, I'll just keep talking. I'll just keep talking. <laughs> you just asked me to go so far back that I'm like, I'm remembering this shit as I go along. Keep it going. Um, but, uh, literally, um, they, you know, they asked me to come do star search and I'm like, what is a singer? Cause there I am doing a musical. And, um, I, you know, they had Sam Harris was on the first, in, in that first season. And I mean, he's so good. And I'm if you've never seen Sam Harris, look him up online. He went on to do Broadway and stuff. He's amazing. And I was like, I can't compete with the likes. I can sing, but I can't compete with the likes of Sam Harris. They're like, no, we want you to come on as a stand-up comic. And I'm like, you know, I'm not really a stand-up comic. It's part I'm playing in there. They go, yeah, but it says here in your bio, uh, you know, that you wrote a lot of your own material from, your, you know, stuff. And I go, yeah. And they go, and you can win $100,000. I went, uh, fuck, have you seen my act? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going into the clubs and putting it together tomorrow. <laughs> uh, so I went on the show and um, I was flying back and forth from L.A. to New York doing the show in, in New York. And and I, every time I'd win, I'd, I'd keep, uh, um, you know, I'd keep wind, uh, winding up, uh, um, you know, having to go back out to L.A. And, um, you know, and then every time I'd win, I'd be like material, you know, because I didn't really have my own material. So I was creating these bits. I was coming, I was taking like bits that I had done from the time I was in high school with Fred. Like we used to do this bit where we would do all the characters from the Wizard of Oz. And that became one of my signature bits where I would do like the entire Wizard of Oz in, you know, well, originally it was like 10 minutes, but for Star Wars, it had to be like two and a half minutes. I'd be like, it's a twister. It's a twister. Dorothy, Dorothy, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. You know, as called an examiner, <laughs> a holy examiner, as she not only we represent, leave her here. Who killed my sister? What's you with the ruby slippers? Oh, rubbish, you have no powers here. Because before someone drops a house on you, 
What's them? What's them? That's the castle of the wicked witch. Oh, Dorothy's in that awful place. Oh, I hate to think of her in there. Fellas, we've got to get her out. I got a plan how to get in there, and you're going to lead us. All right, I'm going here for Dorothy. Wicked witch or no wicked witch? Gods or no gods, it's just one thing I want you fellas to do. What's that? Talk me out of it. <laughs> and so each week I would like come up with another bit, you know, where I would, I mean, at one point I had won enough where I didn't have any material and I just, and a friend of mine, uh, um, Jimmy Vallely, who, who went on to write on like Golden Girls and Arrested Development and stuff like that, was a very funny guy. And he was like, oh, why don't you do like a, a send up of Star Search? And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. So I went and walked on Hollywood Boulevard to one of these sex shops and bought an inflatable love doll. And it became like the contestant on Star Search. And I was the host. <laughs> and, you know, I put tape over the mouth, you know, because the mouth was like, you know, obviously. I used to sell those things. So I could yeah. use some pointers. <laughs> exactly. You know, but I'd rip the tape off. It'd be like, GG Clef. Oh, you know, and I do like those stupid dance moves they used to do on Star Search with it. You know, it's the, the dance team of tipping toes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like the uh, Gigi, uh, was it um, Tanya Cheekbones, you know, was the was the model. And I'm like, you know, taking pictures and blowing a fan on it, you know, and, and all this stuff. And I didn't expect to win. And, you know, by then I already had won enough to get into the semifinals and I won again. And so I started getting just more and more bizarre with my bits till finally, um, uh, you know, I was in the semifinals. And um, then when we got to the semifinals at the end of the, would then would have been the second season, going into the second season, I wound up uh, going up against Rosie O'Donnell, who had, who I knew from the clubs, uh, from having now started doing stand-up on a regular basis in the clubs, and um, who was obviously very talented. And, and uh, I saw you beat out Sinbad, too. And then I and then I went in the finals against Sinbad, and it was just like, I didn't really expect to win because I really hadn't done much stand-up, you know, <laughs> except on the show. But I think that might have been why I won, because I was writing my bits specifically for the two and a half minutes that they gave me. Yeah, and, it wasn't like, um, adding, like yeah. you're at the club that you're chopping in two-minute bits. This, this exactly. Before, you know, how can this, you really let yeah. people know who you are and set it up with your material that these other people... And for me, it was like an Ernie Kovacs, if you know who Ernie was. Yeah. Um, I was a little younger, remember Ernie Kovacs, but you seem like the kind who might, but, you know, we'd get up there and do these, you know, he tried to sell you a car and it would fall through the floor and, you know, it'd be, you know, he used to do these fun kind of, you know, uh, bits that had, you know, like I used to do one of my bits was I did a bit where like I had, you know, stuffed my arm. So a hand came up through my coat. You know? And it, you know, got me stoned and brought me the telephone. I'm talking to the telephone. It brings up a gun and tries to get me to commit suicide. And, you know, and the people are laughing. I mean, it's so bizarre, but people are laughing hysterically. And again, I didn't expect to win. I just went, went for it. You know, I said, you know, I can't think of this as a competition. I think of it as like they give me two and a half minutes to do the John Kassir show. Mm -hmm. So my introduction to Hollywood it was as a stand-up comic, even though I came out of the legit theater of New York and had just... and. Three Guys Naked was such a hit that I finally, after, you know, five, six years of barely scraping together enough money to eat in New York, um, all of a sudden, I probably could have stayed in New York and worked, you know, on Broadway on a regular basis in musical theater. But again, it didn't pay, pay so much. And, right. and, you know, it's just the opportunities weren't the same. And so I was like, this is a big opportunity for me. So it took a while for me to fight my way back to being seen as an actor in, in, in LA, you know, and then I had to learn how to kind of be myself, which I hadn't really gotten a chance to do much of, you know, playing on the theater, you play so many different crazy characters, whether it's this bizarre right. stand-up comic or, you know, Ralph and Reefer Madness or whatever, you know, and, you know, here you are auditioning and they want, you know, like, uh, you know, what are you like, you know, and you're like, right. and not to mention you, you strike me as someone who has like an absurdist avant-garde sense of humor. And totally. I came to, from being an Andy, entertainer. There's know? already an Andy Kaufman. What do you bring to the table? That's a really hard mountain to, to climb. So yeah. 
That's all. Most of the parts that I would get, you know, in, in the vein of what you're talking about, most of the parts that I wound up getting were the parts that weren't really written on the page. They did, you know, it was an unusual character and they wanted somebody to come in and bring their thing, mm -hmm. you know, and that's the kind of thing that I got, you know, I mean, I remember getting my, my first TV series was first in 10 on HBO, which was HBO's first series. And I, you know, it was about a football team and OJ Simpson was the general manager and Chris Maloney from SVU was the quarterback and uh, Delta Burke owned the team. She had won it in a divorce settlement. She caught her husband sleeping with a tight end, you know, but, um, but uh, it was just really what they wrote. But uh, And the, and the writers were these two, two funny Jewish guys that just loved my character. And they wrote me the funniest, weirdest shit to do. I played Zagreb Shkanuski, who came from Bulgaria and he could kick 60 yard field goals. And, um, you know, so here he was let loose on America with this great job and all this money and no idea of cause and effect, you know, it's like, Hey, I play for the California Bulls. I fuck you both. Yes. <laughs> hey, they love me, <laughs> you know, and, um, I was supposed to come do two episodes and I, they were laughing, you know, we had so much fun and they were laughing so hard at my character that they decided to keep me on for six seasons. So, you know, I wound up on that show for a number of years. Oh, and, my God. Um, you know, and that was a lot of fun. I really got to, you know, of course, you know, so few people had HBO. A lot of people have never even seen the show. It was like horny teenagers watched the show because it was football and, you know, it was a show where you, you know, their parents didn't know that they were seeing titties, you know? Right. So, um, but, uh, have you done stand up since this? Uh, was, since I did you got stand up a lot. I mean, I would do it every pilot season. I'd get another, you know, like a sitcom or something from just going up on stage and being seen by the talent scouts in Hollywood. And then I, you know, I did stuff on the road. I opened for the, you know, for some big acts. I opened for the temptations and wow. the four tops on their TNT tour. You know, when I went star search, they're like, okay, you're going to be opening. You know, they just announced it on TV. They didn't even tell you're me. You're opening for Tom Jones in Las Vegas. <laughs> and everybody's pat me on the back and they're like, you're opening for Tom Jones in Las Vegas. I go, how am I going to open for Tom Jones in Las Vegas? I have no fucking act. You know, it's like, you know, other than the bits that I had done on Star Search, I had no act. So I had to get my ass into the, you know, into the club and put together an act. And with all these bits, um, I realized that a lot of my stuff was making fun of pop culture through television. So I created this act back based on a guy who was addicted to television, you know, um, and I would literally like change channels on myself with a remote control and and uh, eventually turned it into like a Lily Tomlin kind of one man show. Oh. Uh, and, uh, you know, because that was really more, you know, I really enjoyed doing it in the theater more than I enjoyed doing it on the stand up stage, because then I didn't have the, you know, I could bring some pathos to it. And I could bring my character that, you know, that oddball character you're talking about to that care, you know, that. And it's such a thin line between one one man theater and stand up like yeah. that. It is so thin. Yeah. And fact, bring that different kind of audience for sure. You know, I mean, it's a yeah. different setup, you know, it, the, the fact that you can bring that, that, because I mean, it's hard. It's totally hard yeah. that you bring into that and you bring people in. Damn, man, you're talented. You're talented oh, thank you. Yourself. Well, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, you get your, you, it's kind of a baptism of fire when you do stuff like street performing because there's nothing as hard as that because you have to yeah. grab the audience's attention on the street. You know, you don't have the luxury of people showing up knowing that there's going to be a people on stage, they have a light on them, you know, they're a little loosed up with some liquor, you know, they're sitting in their seat, they know they're supposed to watch you, that doesn't respect you, shut up, but, you know, on the street, you know, I'd I, I used to climb a scaffolding, there was a, for years across the street from the Metropolitan Museum on Fifth Avenue, there was this, this tall brownstone building that had scaffolding, they were redoing the brownstone on the and I would climb the scaffolding and hang a banner. People could see me from two blocks in either direction. Now appearing John Kassir. And then I would come back across the street. And people sit on the steps like I had my own theater. What and, a gimmick. And I just, you know, improvise off of what was happening. And eventually you had bits that you would know what's happened every Sunday or every Saturday or every once in a while, somebody pull up in a limo. I had a bit, you know, the ice cream vendor would be there. I'd have a bit, you know, a pregnant woman would come by. I have a bit, you know, the first time I did it, it was improvised. The second time I would have it, I would recreate that. And then something else would happen on that because everybody's different, you know, and um, to the point where, 
you know, I could go on for, I'd go, I'd, I'd keep it down to 20 minutes, but, you know, I could go on for hours and then, um, you know, pass the hat. And if you, especially you, when they'd close the museum at 5 PM on Sundays, you'd have 500 people coming out of the, out of the museum. And I'd be standing there to do an act. You know, I got arrested a couple of times for stopping traffic in Fifth Avenue. <laughs> and of course, the, the judge was like yelling at the cop. You got something better to do than, to, you know, arrest the mind. What the hell, man? It's, what, what He's just doing? busking. He's just we busking. Had no, we had no license. It's like license schmeitzens. Like, <laughs> why were you, you know, stopping traffic? I wasn't stopping them on purpose. There was just so many it people. was doing my thing. The They're street. the ones that got into the street. Yeah. yeah. I didn't tell them that I would stand in front of the buses and pretend to lasso them and then, you know, walk down <laughs> Fifth Avenue, you know, slow enough that they could only go that speed. So it looks like I'm pulling a bus down Fifth Avenue. <laughs> but, um, so, what, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was an exciting time for me, but you know, it was, it was tough living, tough living in New York with no money. You know, he's, you like, sure. you hide money, you know, change in your apartment that you got from street performing so that, you know, if you're hungry, you can at least go down for a buck and a quarter and buy a slice of pizza. That's what it was in 1980 through 1985 or whatever. Wow. It, 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 and that was like the gritty, like close to the the roughest part of the New York thing. Because I mean, oh, I yeah. was a kid, you know, in the in the Are 80s. You from no, <laughs> I'm from Georgia. <laughs> oh, okay. It's got its own set of problems. You know, yeah, we yeah, it's again. rough down here too. <laughs> so, I mean, so, the horror stories coming from, you know, reading the paper, like, oh, man, stabbed in Times Square because he had a magazine. <laughs> now you see movies and somebody's like, there's a woman jogging alone through Central Park. It was like, yeah. at Twilight, when I lived in New York, you would not go into Central no. Park anywhere. No, see, I you love, were thinking, you, love you would not go down into the East Village. Yeah. I, I had friends that got apartments because they were a bit yeah. like, I got a five bedroom apartment in the East Village. I was like, yeah, but you can't leave it. No shit. The rest is, <laughs> you got corpses for roommates. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I had the cab driver drop me off and uh, he wouldn't go closer than five blocks from my apartment. And he dropped me off. And then, you know, there's a guy leaning like this. And, 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 and then when, as I got closer, he had a knife and he was like, give me all your money. I was like, oh, wow. but, you know, I got attacked three times. Wow. I got attacked once doing my street act. This guy was nuts. These were, these were during the years when um, uh, Reagan, the Reagan administration had closed down. Um, down and they, the they changed the laws about keeping people, you know, um, in, in, you know, under duress in hospitals. Um, like Bellevue and stuff. And they gave them a $5 cab ride as far away as they could and just put them out on the street. And there was a lot of people who were, you know, angry, you know, schizophrenic. And this guy just, you know, he didn't like the way I looked. I guess he didn't like my, maybe he had a bad experience with a clown as a kid. I don't know. But he came after me in the middle of my act and people thought it was part of the act. The act. Oh my God. You know, except the, for the usual people that were there, the vendors and this kind of thing. And they jumped on him and held him down until <laughs> security came down from the museum. Wow. And they, wow. Tied him chair, they tied him in a chair and in a chair with him. And when I came in there, the guy's coming at me like this. Oh <laughs> you know, I'm just like, dude, what did I do? What did I do? You know? I'm sorry. <laughs> Hates mimes. It's crazy. It's crazy. But um, I got attacked on the subway by a guy who just didn't like the way I looked. And... Uh, you know, in front of like 35 people, he just wanted to throw me on the tracks. Whoa. Uh, <clears throat> luckily, the train came. Well, first, I was afraid the train was coming because I thought it was going to get me and throw me on the tracks. And then, you know, the train came and I went on the, the you know, the busiest car. So he couldn't get through to me, but he had already like bloodied my nose. And, you know, it was like. Oh, my God. Yeah. And that was during the time where it was like, you know, I'm minding my own business. Totally. I just feel the guy looking at me like this. He's really tall. and and. I could see he had construction boots on. And I could feel him just looking at me, like muttering under his breath. And I did one of these. What the fuck are you looking at? Oh, no. Fucking And he just came after me, man. Oh, shit. <laughs> and wow. people were like, people were like, run away, run away from him. Yeah, I'm, I'm not getting 
away from him. What are you talking about? He got me down one end of the platform and I had to come past him, past the other end of the platform. And he kicked, you know, opened up my elbow. And finally, this, this little feminine guy, God bless him, this little gay guy gets up and goes, stop it, just stop it. To the guy, and the guy goes, hey, well, he was looking at me, you know. And, and? <laughs> I was just like, oh my God, he just needed somebody to school him. <laughs> but it was just like, oh my God. You know, I thought it was dead. Uh, I thought for sure it was, it was New York. Yeah. On the electric rail, you know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. But, um, you know, those are the years of, grow, you know, uh, like I said, baptism by fire getting into LA. But, you know, <clears throat> Tales from the Crypt wound up being my first real voiceover job. I mean, you know, paying voiceover job. Now, since you were a fan of EC Comics, did you did you seek that out? Did you hear about it? Or literally, I got a call from my one of my agents. He said, "Hey, listen, you know, HBO is doing, you know, and they and you know they know that you, you know, they're looking for an actor who can do voices, who's also funny, you know, this whole thing, and you know." why don't you go audition for it? And I go, they're doing a show of Tales from the Crypt. I was like, oh my God. You know, I thought it was just going to be, and HBO still wasn't in everybody's household yet. And I was just like, this is just going to be another show like First and 10 where only a few people see it, but it sounds like a really fun job. You know, of course I'll go audition for it. And especially when I found out that the audition was in Kevin Yeager's studio and, you know, anybody who does at home doesn't know Kevin Yeager is, of course, he made the Crypt Keeper puppet, designed Chucky, designed, you know, Freddy's look, he, you know, directed movies, done, you know, now he does all the body parts on bones, you know, I mean, he's, he's you know, Kevin's one of the most talented, um, you know, special effects artist, and and he's just an artist, period, across the bay, but director, creative person, you know, in the business. And when I went down, there were all these people, like, reading the copy, you know, reading the puns and going, be careful what you ask for, you may get it. They're like, this is terrible. You know, they're no, like, don't, they're like, you guys don't get it. This guy, this is Shakespeare. This guy thinks this is Shakespeare, you know? And I'm like, Seeing Kevin had different versions of the puppet. Some of them have noses, some of them didn't. You know, he had, was working on in his studio. And of course, just that alone was like I was a kid in a candy store with all these body parts and, you know, creatures that he had created that were in movies that I had seen my whole, you know, uh, for the last number of years, all hanging on the wall and stuff. And I'm like, holy crap, this is incredible. I can't and, imagine. You know, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, you know, I can okay, he's got to have like that fun delivery. He's doing puns. And I used to watch Alfred Hitchcock presents and he used to love doing all those. Tonight's episode is about a man, you know? And it was like, I'm going, there you go. That's this guy is that guy, you know, this is from the comic book and he's got holes in his throat. So I'm going to give him a text, make him juicy. Like he can't, he has no lips. So all the, he can't keep the slime from slipping out of his mouth. And, you know, and of course, from doing the Wizard of Oz, I was like, I'll give him Margaret Hamilton's laugh, you know? So I go in there and I start doing it for Kevin and Kevin didn't even have like a studio, voiceover studio set up. He just had a little boom box with a little microphone plugged into it that he, you know, hooked on me and he was, you know, recording onto a cassette and I start doing it for him and he's like, because he had already listened to a bunch of people and he was like. <laughs> <laughs> so basically he looked like, like we right now. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And, and it started cracking me up. So I was like, oh, perfect. The guy laughs at his own jokes. So I'm like, you know, and I started doing that and playing that more. And, you know, I'm doing it for him. And he's like, oh, my God, that was great. You know, great. So like the next day he goes, I need you to come do it for the producers. I was like, sure. So I show up and it's fucking Joel Silver and Richard Donner. You know, it's like the, the biggest producers in, and director who did, you know, Lethal Weapons and, and, and you know, Goonies and Superman and, you know, Joel Silver, who produced all these big movies and stuff. I'm sitting there in a trailer that they had off the set that was their office doing it for them. And they're like, OK, we'll see you on the set. And I'm like, <laughs> really? That you know, it was like maybe the easiest job I ever got, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, you don't believe them until they actually like call your raise and book you. Right. So, <clears throat> right. 
You know, and then when I got into the studio with Kevin, you know, I started doing this, hello, kitties, you know, and doing this stand-up thing. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. they didn't give me much money for the puppet. So the puppet's mouth moves really slow. Can you slow it down? I go, okay, slow So if you look at the first yeah. season or two, the crooks, you know, almost whispering to you. And that was only because the puppet couldn't go any faster. And then... Of course, so the show was, you know, really well received. They gave him more money to spruce up the Crib Keeper and put more servos, those little motors and stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the puppeteers were so good. And then we would, you know, I would pre-record it and then they could rehearse with me and do, you know, with uh, my voice and, and four or five guys. It took three guys just to make the face move. And, you right. know, they were so in sync with one another, making this thing come to life. It was pretty amazing. You know, and then I would start, I would start just cracking them up, doing impersonations as the Crypt Keeper. You know, I started putting my own stand up into the Crypt Keeper, you know, Crypt Keeper's John Wayne or, you know, as, 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 uh, you know, as Marlon Brando and a streetcar named Desire. And all the next thing I know, they're writing all that into the script, you know, and um, Stella, you know, and doing the Crypt Keeper, doing these characters. And we had a lot of fun. I have uh, actually... Um, this week doing a uh, there's a, a new app called Clubhouse and we're doing a um, a Q&A Tuesday um, this coming Tuesday uh, with Gil Adler, who was uh, who came on as a producer into the second season when I was on the show. Um, and Gil, of course, is incredible, not only as a as the showrunner, but also as a director and a writer and directed some of my favorite episodes on the show. And um, so we're going to, we're going to tag team a, a Q and a for that. That should be really cool. Neat. So if you get a chance, check it out. Um, John, were you a fan of earlier anthology type shows like uh, night gallery tales from the dark? Oh, forget it. They were my favorite. You know, the weekend when they would have like all the twilight zones or they would play, you know, like every Saturday afternoon or the original you know, I'm old enough that the original uh, Outer Limits would be on Saturday afternoon. And I would just sit there, you know, at that point in the afternoon where everybody else was around somewhere else. And, you know, and that room tone noise, you know, you know, and the whole <laughs> thing. It was just my favorite. I loved it. It was so great. And Alfred Hitchcock Presents and um, Night Gallery and the original Night Gallery with uh, Rod Serling. And, you know, all those shows were my favorites. Um, you know, they didn't have DVDs, they didn't have a DVR, they didn't have streaming, um, they didn't have on demand. So you had to look through the TV guide and find what you might want to see that, you know, and they had a thing in Baltimore where I grew up called Twilight Movie. And that came on, I don't know, like four, four thirty, something like that. My mom would be making dinner. You know, I came from the generation where everybody had dinner together, you know, mm-hmm. like the whole family of seven of us, five kids and two adults every night. And my mom made dinner every night, you know, so while she was making dinner, I'd be sitting there watching and they would play anything from musicals, you know, seasonal movies, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, White Christmas, that kind of thing. But they would always have all the sci-fi. He's like Attack of the 50 Foot Woman, Mothra, this kind of thing. And then... My favorites, of course, were the Universal Monster horror movies. You know, all the, you know, Wolfman, Dracula, Abbott Costello beats Frankenstein is still my favorite slash horror movie ever. You know, um, all these things would come on. And then, of course, all the Roger Corman stuff, you know, uh, Mask of the Red Death. I don't think they played that. It was a little racy for probably television. I remember seeing that in the drive-in. My parents had taken us to a drive-in. And, of course, we were supposed to watch the cartoons and go to sleep in the back of the car. But I watched, you know, Mask of the Red Death. And I was like, oh, my God, they're branding that woman's breast with a cross upside down. What the hell is that? This is so cool, you know. And, um you know, but they would have House of Wax and Tingler and all those movies. And, um, you know, that was stuff that left an indelible impression on me. So that, you know, to have gotten a role that, that I used yeah. some of my favorite stuff growing up to, you know, carry that over into the fiber of what I was doing. And then, of course, you know, the Crypt Keeper was so um, popular that, you know, I got offered to be represented by the best voiceover agents in the business. And I've been with them all these years, you know, like since 1988. 
so like 32 mm -hmm. years or whatever, you know, and they've been my, my voiceover agents at DPN. They were originally the, the ICM voiceover department. Um, and then they broke off on their own. They still handle the ICM clients, but they, they have their, their own thing and they're just the best in the world. And, and I've been with them all these years and um, we've done a lot of great stuff. And, it, you know, and it's it literally launched my voiceover career, which has become more prevalent as you get older, just just by the fact that there's less parts for you as you get older. It's just the way it is. There's so many people, um, you know, that they get into their their 40s, their 50s, especially their 60s and older, then they just don't get any work at all. And um, they have to find another way to make a living or take their pension early or whatever they do. But I've been very fortunate. I worked very hard at it. I always have. And, you know, it was like, had a hard time through school, but, you know, with all that, you know, imagination and dyslexia and these kind of things. But, you know, when I, the, the things that I was strong at, I put 150, 200% into and had no problem doing it. And those, those things have, you know, I feel fortunate even during a pandemic to make a living, you know, I set up mostly I did most of my auditions from home, but now mm -hmm. I do all my jobs from home and I just upgraded my equipment and, you know, uh, turned, uh, you know, one of my walk-in closets into a studio and, you know, and, you know, I do my, my sessions from there. That's so funny you say that because normally I'm in my closet when, when we're doing broadcast. <laughs> but for different reasons. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's hilarious because um, another of our, our co-hosts, Daniel, he also broadcasts from his closet and we, we have this thing where we wait and we see how long the show will go before our guests is like, are you, are you in your closet? <laughs> Happens every time. They can tell because you're running out of air halfway through the session. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, this is, uh, I feel really, you know, like obviously I worked really hard at it, but I do feel fortunate to have been able to, you know, set myself up and then, and then, you know, over time you, start having, you know, people go, well, what's your wheelhouse? You know, because, it, you know, if you think of somebody, you know, like James Earl Jones, this is CNN, you know, Luke, you know, I mean, you think of him doing his voice with his gravitas and all this different thing. It's like, well, what do you do? And I go, I do whatever they throw at me. You know, I do, you know, and then somewhere down the line, you get something like Deadpool and all of a sudden people are like, oh, it's really cool. You're really kind of fun. Well, We'll, we'll do, we'll, we'll make you those kind of characters, sarcastic, you know, kind of thing. And then you get something like Miko the raccoon. They go, oh, he does animals. Okay, well, okay, then you're just doing animals on The Simpsons. And then you're doing, you know, now you're doing, you know, the the uh, the dragon in, Pete, in the new version of Pete's Dragon. And then, you know, the new one that I've got coming out is, is uh, Flora and Ulysses, which is a children's book. They turn it, you know, and I play you squirrel, you know, and I just was doing squirrels for a long time now just to make my two border collies go, um, you know, around the house. So, <laughs> and as, as, you know, things do, those, those things you did as a lark or for fun or, you know, to express your imagination becoming your wheelhouse things that you're living in. So, you know, I feel fortunate to to be able to make a living at what I do. It's not easy. It's not always, but uh, you know, I've, after winning Star Search and stuff, I probably had that opportunity to be the next, you know, I don't know, comic with his own sitcom kind of stuff, and yeah. they wanted to do that kind of stuff with me. But I didn't really know what to do with that. If I had been older and know myself better, I probably could have. But I don't know that I would have had as long of a career. I would have been, right. you know, the guy who did that show that was this, right. as opposed to a guy who's who's worked for the last 40 years, you know, constantly and um, gratefully, you know, and I, I make enough, I make plenty of money to, to be able to have, you know, a regular life. I don't need to own my own jet. Um, I wouldn't even know what to do with that. But. <laughs> <clears throat> Can you make the seats look like Looney Tune characters? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, uh, that kind of thing, but, you know, and I've, I've certainly worked with some of the, the greats in the business. I mean, you know, whether it's behind the scenes or, or on, um, and, uh, you know, which your, is I'm sorry. No, 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 not at all. Not I was going to say you've done a lot of video game work too. Is there a big difference uh, in the recording process from recording a video game and a TV show? 
Um, you know, it depends on the video game. Some of them are much more scripted, kind of like a Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of thing where you're playing with other characters and those have a tendency, you know, be more scripted. You get to do a little more of a scripted kind of performance. And then the other ones are all like reactions or he goes into a room and he says this or he gets kicked and he says that. And those are pretty much like going down a spreadsheet and going from line to line and giving them different versions of it. Now, okay, now we're going to scream and yell for the next five hours. You know, um, so it, it ranges from fun to brutal. You know, um, I got the chance to do motion capture on Jack the Giant Slayer, um, which was incredible because that was a $200 million movie. And people, I mean, you know, people are like, yeah, I did motion capture on, you know, uh, you know, this game or that game and stuff like that. It's not like doing a $200 million movie. You and McGregor is this close to your face and Stanley is standing here and you're doing a two-headed with British actor Bill Nye, you know, and <laughs> that kind of thing. And that pressure is on you be not only an actor but to bring to life everything that's not in the room and but it was truly one of the most fun things and rewarding things I've ever done is you know I spent four months in London and I've always loved going overseas ever since I did USO tours back in the day with animal crackers you know um and uh, London's a very expensive city and to do it on somebody else's dime is really great <laughs> um but and to work with that you know the, that those pedigrees with you know Brian Singer directing and and uh, you know legendary pictures and Warner Brother you know doing a big movie um, was pretty incredible and so I, I would like to do more of it but I don't I don't get as much of it I, I guess you know it's they either use you for one part of it or another part of it but at the same time if they're not going to pay you more than doing the voiceover part I'd rather sit in my closet. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Me too. You know, <laughs> I, I do that then, um, uh, you know, I, and I'll, I'll get my fix by doing theater. I still do theater and it still doesn't pay very much, but, and I do it. And most of the time I've done it in LA, I've done it for mostly free, you know, reefer madness was, uh, a job I did as a favor for a friend, Andy Fickman, who was his director. And, you know, Andy's gone on to do great stuff and we, we, we continue to work together, but he called me up and at the time we had met, he was uh, head of development for, for um, Bette Midler's company. And they were looking for comics to create something for. And we immediately hit it off and, you know, and we went our separate ways. He got other jobs and he started doing other things. He was writing and he's directing theater and this kind of stuff. And he called me up and he goes, Hey, you know, we're doing this show reefer madness. And the guys who wrote it, like I've known your work since three guys naked from the waist down, you know, so you see how <laughs> keep like compounding themselves through your career. And I was like, you're kidding me. They go, yeah, they were in college at the time, you know, and Dan Studney and Kevin Murphy who wrote it, who, you know, had now been working on, party of five as writers and writing for honey i shrunk the kids and all these different shows and they had created this musical with me in mind in this part and i was like oh gosh i don't know what to do with that and they're like i go you know i'm really busy i was on like three different series at the time and you know they were like no no, no. and andy's like no this is gonna be really fun he goes, let me send you send you material and that kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, I'm in. And of course it was in a 99 seat theater, but the people they had hired, all the actors were so great. And I either knew them by their reputation or quickly knew them for their talent. <clears throat> and we created something very special and some little show that normally runs for a couple of weeks wound up running two years in a small theater wow. in, in LA and then going off Broadway. Sadly, we opened five days after September 11th and it never really got um, seen by us, but by a small audience in New York. Um, and, uh, but then they made the movie and I was fortunate enough to be one of the actors who had created his role. So indelibly I got to play it in the movie as well and get raped by Kristen Bell. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and to this day, I uh, love reviews so <laughs> oh it's so great it, reefer madness was just it's just hysterical if you've not seen it please smoke a bone and watch it's so funny i'll take um, that after this and um you know and steven weber and i still laugh our asses off talking about it we 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 knew each other, but became close friends while working on that show because we were up in Vancouver for three, four months or whatever, shooting that. <clears throat> and that whole group of people, 
we're all amazing, every single one of them. And uh, I still have long-term relationships with every single one of them. And, um, you know, those, because it was theater meets movie, you know, you have to rehearse it, not like to show up. Okay, you're in bed with this woman, your husband and wife, you've been together for 40 years. Oh, hi, how do you do? Nice to meet you. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Okay, let's do it. You know, and that's what usually filming television and this kind of, you know, or movies that aren't huge budget things are. And this was different because we had to pre-record the music. We got to rehearse all the choreography, rehearse together. Andy Fickman was directing and, you know, we had a blast and it, you know, and that shows in what you make. It's something that people will always enjoy and it, it has a following that will never die, you right. know, um, uh, as long as they're alive and they keep passing it on to other people. But, you know, those are the kind of projects that you wind up getting. They may not be the most famous projects, but they're ones that people are like, oh, God, he was in that, <laughs> you know? That's I mean, I have is. a career of playing parts that never look like me or looked at like me at different parts of my career so I don't look the same or whatever. And I used to have all that wild, crazy hair. And <laughs> I'd walk into the grocery store and people know they recognize me for something and they'd go, are you Kramer? You're that Kramer <laughs> dude, right? And I was like, no, nah, he's like six foot two, and, you know, wow. um, you know, it's like, you know, but um, that's to me, I'd rather have my characters famous than me. So I, right. I, you know, I mean, people don't normally recognize me in the street or I mean, people do, but let's face it, you can't help it, especially the way media is today and everything is all over the place. But most of the years I've, uh, except when I won Star Search, I literally couldn't walk out my door without somebody, especially living in New York, because people in yeah. New York won't treat you like a celebrity. They're like, like they treat like you, they went to high school with you. Dude, you took down my man Sinbad. It's really <laughs> nice being you, dude, man. It's really great, man. Hey, can I get a picture with you? You know, this kind of thing, you know. And, um, but you know, it's unless I go to a convention where everybody, you know, knows what I look like and that kind of stuff or, you know, that kind of thing or an event or, you know, uh, associated with a certain project, you know, I, I still am able to uh, work in this business and keep a certain level of an anonymity. That's a word. Um, <laughs> so, John, what's the Crypt Keeper's favorite on. episodes? Oh, uh, gosh. Well, like I said, I love some of the episodes that Gil Adler wrote and directed. Death of Some Salesman is one of my favorites and and purely on Tim Curry, you know, performance and that playing, <laughs> playing the parents and Winona, you know, um, playing all three characters. It was just amazing. I think he was nominated for an Emmy for that performance. Um, I've always been obsessed with ventriloquist dummies. You know, I had I had them as a kid from the time I was a little kid. You know, um, so I love uh, Ventriloquist's Dummy uh, with uh, Don Rickles and Bobcat Goldthwait. That was uh, per, uh, directed by um, by Richard Donner. And that's one of my favorites. In fact, I have a little Morty doll around here somewhere. Morty! <laughs> you know, um, and uh, Richard Donner had the original one in a, in a glass case in his office. You know, and you'd walk wow. in there and you're like, holy crap. <laughs> Um, as opposed to having, you know, Joel Silver had Predator in the lobby, <laughs> the original costume, which was like six foot seven. Um, and uh, I love that one. That one was really good. Love the Christmas episode. It's so funny how many people love the Christmas episode as their favorite. I don't know what, they, I, I guess it's just so twisted or it's so classic in some way, you know, naughty or nice. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I got to work. I got to work with uh, um, a brain fart here. Um, sadly, Benny from LA Law. Um, why am I having? Why am I uh, help you out here? Fried right now. <laughs> I was, uh, I was uh, telling Justin before the episode. I've got the uh, the Crypt Keeper Christmas album. Larry that's, Drake. That's Larry Drake. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I know. You know, out of all the stuff we did on the side, that's got to be my favorite. Because they, they, they're like, we're doing a Christmas album. And I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. You know, when I showed up and expected them to have some kind of canned music or something. No, they had gotten an orchestra and put together really good arrangements. And the lyrics were unbelievable. And they let me improvise all I wanted. And, you know, and did what is like 15 tracks or something. It is really, they're stupid for not putting that out every year. The record yeah. company are idiots because I have more people ask me for that and you can't find them. They put out one pressing of them. They sold them all. And that was it. 
You can maybe find one every once in a while on eBay for 60 bucks or something. And it's like, that's ridiculous. It should be a stocking stuffer that they put out every year. Absolutely. And sell the hell out of it. It should at least you be. You hear that, guys? We're talking to the eBay. It's not on <laughs> iTunes. It's not on you know, any of the other. Um, you don't hear it on, you know, I mean, they used to have every year Dr. Demento used his Christmas songs. Yeah. You never heard it. And it's like the best stuff out there. So it's, funny. It's great. It's great. But um I worked with Larry a couple of times and we we did a, a my one Star Trek episode together and Larry Drake had they had created a, cre- a character for him that had a clitoris on his forehead you know although nobody would cop to it that's what it was <laughs> and so you know and he was really tall and I was really small I played this flimflam artist you know guy uh Dralian and um named gar and i would look up and i go a little something right there i start tickling it you know and, and they'd be like you know we'd crack up and of course the the you know the the director stuff was getting pissed off because we were wasting time <laughs> we could, i couldn't stop i I'd, I'd lose it every time i'd look at up at him because there he is you know in the middle of his forehead but um god bless him he was really talented and really really amazing guy to work with larry drake sorry couldn't couldn't pull the handle on your name larry it's just it's been a long week yeah <laughs> Trying to see your getting morning. reunited. Oh, sorry. That's okay. I see you're about to be reunited with Billy Zane in a movie called Hellblazer. Yes, although we didn't have any scenes together. Ah, but, you know, but um, but I had scenes with with Adrian Barbeau and um <sighs> and uh, who else? Uh, Tony Todd's in that movie. Uh, Tony Todd. You know, to, I mean, most of these people I see at conventions, and we've become friends over the years. We go have dinner. You know, we keep in touch. We like each other's shit on Twitter, you know, because we're all, you know, people will hashtag all of us together all the time, you know, and, you know, whether it's Bill Mosley or, you know, um, all these different people and um, uh, Ashley Lawrence, who else? I mean, all we're all we're all buds. We're all really sad to see, you know, Sid go. Cause he was, yeah. he was a gang. Uh, God bless him. He was <laughs> what a, you know, what a trailblazer he was. Um, and so good to his fans. Um, so, you know, it's fun when you get to actually, when you all of a sudden get pulled into some project to work together. And, you know, it was fun because I got to play a guy who was kind of like myself. He was kind of like, you know, the town person that everybody would come to with their problems, but he, he owned the gas station, you know, like the, in some small hick town. And, um, <clears throat> Bruce Dern is in it, which is amazing. And Tony Todd, I mean, you know, so um, I can't wait to see it come out. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what stage it's in right now, but um, we had a good time shooting it. And awesome. uh, I think we got it done maybe like a month. Just in time. Showing up. So we got that done. So, <clears throat> yeah, you know, there I still do get asked to do on camera stuff quite often. You know, these days, it's funny, I got asked to do more this year than I have in a long time. And I was like, well, we need you to show up in Atlanta. You're going to be staying in a hotel room by yourself for having takeout food for 14 days quarantining. And then we're going to shoot. Next time you're in Atlanta, you just give us a ring and we'll bring you some home cooking because I'm two hours on the road. (laughs) No, but I, of course, I'm like, no, I don't need to do it that badly. You know, I would like to do it, but I'm not going yeah. to put myself at risk for that, you know? Exactly. It's it's just not worth it. And, you know, because, you know, when you could tell if, if it's a big production and somebody brings you on something, you know that they're going that extra length to make it safe. And then people, you know, when people don't have the resources and stuff, they, they, they cut corners. And that's when people get hurt doing stunts. That's when people you know, get food poisoning from catering because they didn't hire a good caterer. That's when, you know, those yeah. things, things happen. It's just like, you know, it's, you know, it's a job. I've been doing it a long time and I enjoy doing it. And I do my best to try to do the best job I can, no matter what level I'm, you know, I mean, I've, I, I've done a lot of jobs, first time directors, because I believe in giving back and, you know, I, I thought their script was good or I thought they were talented or whatever. And I wanted to give them a chance to have somebody good in their project. And, you know, some of those turned into nightmares where like I'm sleeping in the back of a car because they didn't get finished shooting and I was supposed to be home that night, you know, and stuff like that. And, but then, and then some of them wound up being great experiences. So it's, you know, but there's a point where you're just like, no. yeah. So what would you say is the best piece of acting advice you've received to date? Um, 
my acting advice is the best acting advice I've got. Um, you know, so many actors have heard from some hack director go, less is more, kid, less is more. You go, what the fuck does that mean? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like really what they were saying is, is, you know, try to ground it in as much in yourself as you can and build it from there. And, um, you know, I think I probably would have enjoyed um, – even the really great character roles I played as a young man, which were people are like, oh my God, that guy is like that, you know? And, you know, and when they meet you, they're like, God, you're nothing like that guy. You know, <laughs> probably would have been even deepened the character more to have more of myself in it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, so many actors are like, oh, well, you hit your mark, say your line, and that's all you need to do. And on that's because those people are emotionally accessible, they are being themselves, and they're relaxed enough, because relaxation is important. Because if you have any kind of tensions that don't allow you to do what you want to do, whether it's remember your lines, hit your marks, or be present in the moment with the other actors, then you know, and relax, you know, that's, that's one of the most important things too. I know Anthony Hopkins used to say that, you know, and then of course, it's like, people were like, what's the difference between theater acting and, you know, acting and camera. And um, I know that Michael Caine addressed that um, in one of his books where he was talking about, you know, acting very on stage, very often you have to project it to an audience of up to 2000 people. So you need to, you know, you have to create you have to create um, life that reveals things about what's happening. You know, you have to create those things, whether it's through blocking or reacting or these kind of things, and then act real within that. That just so people, you know, get that. And on camera, you don't. You just have to actually be present and feel those things and create those things so that you are actually experiencing them and trust that the camera catches that. And that's not an easy thing to do in some ways it's harder to do especially if you're skilled because you want to use the skills as opposed to you know being yourself i it took me a lot of years to learn how to do that and of course as you get older you go you keep getting better as an actor and you get less opportunity to use it (laughs) just like anything else it's always like well youth is wasted on the young you know (laughs) all right angelique go ahead i'll shut up So, John, your voice is behind some of the favorite characters and shows of many generations, including mine. Um, Is this part of what keeps you going in the business, just knowing how much impact you have on on us? Well, first of all, you don't know what any impact you would have. If you had asked me if Tales from the Crypt was going to have any impact whatsoever, I I would have told you no. I thought it was going to be some cult thing that only people, you know, people grew up with the comic. Creep like us, right? You know, I didn't think it was going to be the next Twilight Zone or the next, you know, and of course, and then if you go, well, do you think you'd be a big part of it? You go, no, I'm just in the voice for this character. And then you realize, no, that the character is one of the reasons why it was so present and so worked because he's the thing that made it different than other anthology series. It gave it an identity that was beyond each episode. Yep. It meant that all those episodes fit into this one show as opposed to it just being an anthology like, you know. I love like Black Mirror and stuff like that, but each one is just an episode on its own. It doesn't really, you know, other than the fact that we know it's tied into the technology, it doesn't have an identity that the Crypt Keeper is kind of like the ride up to the top of a roller coaster. You know, we all go on the roller coaster for the fear of it and the anticipation of it. And then the ride. And very often, especially since we once we've got been on roller coasters and we want them bigger and better and scarier, you get on one, you go, Nah, that wasn't so scary. But you know what? The ride up to the top is always great. This is an anticipation of, you know, and you always want to go again. And that's what the Crypt Keeper is, you know, is always, you know, so many people that grew up with Tales from the Crypt, their parents let them watch the openings and the closings, but they never let them watch the show for obvious <laughs> reasons. Um, you know, did we know kids were watching it? I did. The, the producers didn't. And they never would believe me when I said, you got to do a version of this for kids. They did the cartoon. That wasn't my idea at all, but they just did it. And I thought it was great. But to me, I wanted them to do a live action show. Well, it turns out they didn't need to. An entire generation of kids were watching the the full blown one the whole time. As a bigger audience now, people grew up with it and consider it a part of their growing up. Not just, it's not just a horror show. 
Mm-hmm. And obviously we have our diehard horror fans and we're proud to be, you know, something that's that identifiable within that genre. But a lot of people just love it because they grew up with it because, oh, it was the only show that my whole family watched together or my parents wouldn't let me watch it. But on the weekends, I stayed with my grandma together, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like people tell me that all the time, you know. I was afraid of it, but I made myself watch it. And so then I got used to it and that's helped me, you know, and as a result, you know, it's like, I really, you know, I have this special bond with it. My, you know, I like to say I popped your scary. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) Maybe that's a good outro. (laughs) That is, that is a good one. All right, John. uh, Dude, that was cold. That was brilliant. That was great. That was a cold read. That was without even reading it through at all first. Oh, yeah. You still got it. (laughs) I have one final question for you, John. Um, As the fiendish foodie here at Monsters, Madness, and Magic, I have to know, what is your go-to movie snack? What's that one munchie that just makes the perfect movie-watching experience for you? Oh, I like to have my lady fingers. They're delicious, <laughs> although my lady was not so quick to part with them. <laughs> That's great. Oh, fantastic. Thanks, you guys. All right, John. Great. Uh, 12, and uh, I'm going to go have uh, a dinner date night with my wife. You enjoy yeah. that. And so uh, I don't know what I'm making, but... Um, It'll Maybe some shish kebab, although Bob won't be too happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, John, you have a good night, and thank you again for giving us some of your time. Thank you so Seriously, much. thank you. Uh, I enjoyed myself. It was a lot of fun. Our pleasure entirely. Send me a link so I can post it on all the social media, and um, send me, you know, the awesome. Oh, you have you're a freaking day, amazing. Bye bye. <laughs> Monsters, madness, and magic.